Good day, and welcome to episode 3 of The Coriolis Effect, brought to you by Fiction Suit and the RPG Gods. Today's episode is called, So That's What Explosive Decompression Feels Like. I'm Dave. And I'm Matthew, and um, I didn't realise you had an Australian heritage, Dave. You said good day at the beginning. <laughs> well, you know... It is a good day. I don't want to say good well, morning because people might be listening in the evening. I don't want to say good evening because people might be listening they might be, in the morning. They might be listening in Australia as well, so they'll <laughs> feel right at home. Well, let's hope. Uh, anyway, today uh, we are going to be talking about, well, uh, we're looking at a new version of the Gearhead Talent. We've got our main bit that's much anticipated by everybody, on, which is all about space combat. And I've got a new location that you might want to consider folding into your adventures. Um, and that's pretty much it, isn't it, Dave? And yeah, and then um, at the end, I'll give a quick update on the, uh, the latest oh, the adventures spectral Corsair, of, course. of the Spectral Corsair. Um, but first, I think, Matt, you wanted to uh, just briefly mention something uh, that's, that's on your mind uh, from the, the wider gaming world. Yeah, um, I, I just thought we shouldn't all be about Coriolis here and we should have a look at um, what's been interesting us out in uh, the wider world of gaming and in fact it's another Swedish game that's caught my attention. Um, there's a Kickstarter currently running from Askvergeln who published a Swedish, Swedish gaming magazine uh, Phoenix and they're hoping to put out an English language version of a venerable Swedish game called Western, which, as its name implies, is all about cowboys. Sounds interesting. Uh, yeah, what else, it's what. What else do you know about it? Well, you know, you know, we 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 had a little bit of a a, a trial with Aces and Eights. Uh, we did a couple of years back. Uh, it looks to me like the guys behind Aces of Eights might have nicked it from the Western <laughs> game. Uh, although we didn't include it in our game, you know there was a, th a thing about hitting people with a shot clock. Yes. Where you sort of um, you you test your accuracy by a dice roll, uh, and then in uh, aces and eights, you use a, a draw of a card to see uh, what direction your your bullet swerved in, and you might still hit your target, but you might not do the damage you expected to do, or you might do more than the damage that you expected to do if you were planning on, the, for example, shooting the gun out of his hand. And I, that's always, a I, always like the, I always like the idea of that. It just always seemed really complicated. I don't know, does, a, does the mechanic in Western uh, look any more uh, sort of... Well, it's all dice-based. I don't think there's any cards in Western, um, but it does look like that's where it was originally uh, created, that mechanic. So... Um, I'm in two minds about kickstarting it, though. We've got lots of games, a backlog of games that we need to play. We do. And not much money. So I don't know whether I will, but I thought fans of Western RPG... Oh, sorry, fans of Swedish RPGs out there listening to this podcast, if they hadn't been aware of it, they might want to check it out. Yeah, uh, excellent. Anything Can... happening in the world of gaming for you? Well, talking of uh, expensive or non-expensive games, you know me, I, I love to to buy games anyway and uh, almost as a collector you know, not knowing whenever I'll get to play them and so I've kicked in for quite a few things over recent years that um, I'm not quite sure when I'm ever going to play them but that, that's fine but one game I've come across uh, with my uh, group of friends down the pub which um, I just got the PDF uh, well I, 
for free, I think, um, called Ten Candles. And uh, if you don't know it, it's it's a cracking, cracking game that um, is all about telling the story. It's about telling the story of the deaths of the characters. So each game, the setting in the game is that ten days ago, the world went dark, the sun was blocked out. Five days ago, they appeared, and these are creatures or well, anything really, uh, you don't know what they are at the start, that are in the dark. And the game starts five days after that. Um, the principle is you have ten candles lit in the room, and each one of those represents a scene in the, in the story. And as you go through, you, um, if you try and do anything, it's a conflict role. And if you fail the conflict role, the candle will go out and the, and the scenario moves on. If you succeed the conflict role, then the player who's done that gets what's called narration rights. So if you said, I want to break into that police station and see if they've got any guns lying around, you make your conflict role. If you succeed, that player then gets to just tell the story from then on, it, whatever they like. It could be absolutely anything. And this is an interesting little concept that we've taken a little bit of getting our heads around, that actually it's not like a traditional RPG where the referee tells you what your outcome is. If you win the conflict role, you decide what happens. It could be absolutely anything you like. So it's uh, very much a sort of collaborative storytelling game. Completely, completely. Mm. And as the game goes through, you uh, you tell your story, and the, the, the eventual outcome is to, to tell of, of, of your heroic death. So the one we played uh, earlier this week was set on a, a moon base um, with creatures sort of breaking in through the walls. Um, the one before that we set here in our hometown, uh, trying to find a way out, find a find an air, airfield with an airplane to get ourselves out. Um, Bangsanger. Uh, well, we went to Duxford. Oh, right. Uh, in the That's end. a long way from where you live. Well, there was a rumour that there was a, a Navy base. Uh, Navy. <laughs> Duh. Um, <laughs> an RAF In the middle base. of Cambridgeshire. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> well, well, no wonder we didn't find a plane. Um, but we got there, and that's where the, the scenario ended, where all our candles ran out. And, and my character did a heroic death trying to uh, distract the creatures that were there to help the others escape, only to have my head pulled off and my body torn apart. But absolutely great fun. And you do it in a darkened room, so it gets darker and darker and darker as the, uh, as the game plays on. That's um, really interesting. It reminds me, actually, of another uh, um, uh, uh, game I participated in in... February, I think it was, which was a live-action role-play, um, and it is called Sarcophagus. And uh, in that game, which I think was first written in Norwegian, uh, you're all various people. You spend quite a lot of time creating the the character you are, um, but then you're put into a nuclear bunker. And again, as the lights go out in this nuclear bunker, you know that none of you are going to ever see the outside again you're all <laughs> going to die in here and it's really uh role playing over the course of a day or five hours um how you deal with that death and yeah. i've got to say it's not heroic you don't get any sort of narrative control really um because it's inevitable what's going to happen and it's really about uh very much an internal thing i um i ended up playing a ukipper who uh <laughs> was not well loved by the rest of the party, uh, yeah. but um, it was it was great fun. Really enjoyed it. it sounds good. Anyway, I suppose we ought to get back to talking about Coriolis. We we should. And I was wondering now now that I know you've had another game 
uh, a second opportunity to run a game and if you were had the shackles released so you could use darkness points um i was just wondering about what your what your impressions were yeah so um yet again this was a game that uh, ended up being a fill-in game our um uh uh, our regular Dungeons and Dragons GM is in the army, and he was called away um, when the um, uh, terror attack happened in Manchester, and uh, so that left us uh, without a GM. And I said, "Oh, I can." The day before this was, uh, I, I I could run this game tomorrow. Everybody agreed, uh, and it's the game um, Dark Flowers, which is in the Quick Start rules. Yes, I'll, I'll try yeah. not to spoil the scenario too much, but we used the pre-gens. It really was uh, just pulling it out of the bag and, and putting it on the table and um, getting everybody to play. But yes, having had the experience that I'd had before of not spending any darkness points, I was now very happy to hmm. see what happens when you use darkness points. I won't tell you too much about the story, um, except to say that my players went, I think, in almost exactly the opposite direction to what the writers intended when they got to the space station so some of the the encounters felt a little bit if you like out of order and right. um i had to get um one of the uh one of the shall we say creatures that they meet to guide them to uh one of the other characters that they're meant to meet and probably meant to have met before um so to sort of bring that story back together but it was good everybody really enjoyed themselves and what i really liked was how willing everybody was to pray and to give me darkness mm -hmm. points and to encourage me even to spend them so at one point one of the creatures um thumps a uh one of the other players but his spacesuit counts as armor and uh obviously doesn't do any damage and then one of the other players said but yeah, I smashed him in the face, you said. I said, yeah. So so is his, is his face plate cracked at all? <laughs> and I thought about it for a moment. I didn't think about it for too long, but I got out a darkness point and says, yes, his well, face funny. plate is cracked. It's funny you should say that, because in the very last game I played with the guys, which uh, yeah, I'll, I'll update people on later on, uh, one of the characters was attacked by a Bayara, and he had a spacesuit on, and he took a hit in the head. And again, I used a, space, uh, a darkness point to have him smash through his helmet and and bite his, you know, actually successfully bite him in the head. Oh right, cool. You're meaner with your darkness points than I ever would be, unless well, unless of course well, it was you at the other end. <laughs> well, no, no, but he, the um, the Bayara had actually caused damage, so the armor hadn't soaked it all up. But I thought, well, let's let's smash it at the same time. Yeah, it was, a, it was a nice narrative moment, especially seeing very shortly after that they had a bit of a explosive decompression moment. Well, yes, and this, the, I mean, the, the, the player that suggested the crap faceplate was um, was mindful of the fact that to be safe and to uh, shall we say not get infected, one of the players had taken the player character's vessel, undocked it from the space station and was sort of hovering nearby. And so they were going to have to spacewalk when they wanted to make <laughs> an escape. And so this left us one helmet short for that spacewalk, which okay. was, you know, all added to the tension. It was all good fun. Well, and maybe everybody maybe, really enjoyed it. Maybe what they would need in that situation is uh, a character who could create something uh, from the things around them. 
And maybe that brings us nicely on. Some sort of jury rigging talent, you mean? Some sort of gearhead uh, kind of talent, yeah. Right. So, So, uh, I know you've got some thoughts on the gearhead talent as it stands. Um, I do. Shall we listen to them now? Yeah, let's do that. When I started thinking about my character for Matthew's campaign, I had a flash of inspiration and immediately knew how he would look. Think Parker from Alien, played by the great Yafet Kotto, but with a combat engineer vibe rather than the hard-pressed union man keen to make sure the corporates don't screw him over on the bonus situation. I also love the name Yafet, as it fits the Coriolis feel perfectly, and after I'd mentioned it to Matthew, he wouldn't let me change that name anyway. So, Yafet Otho was born. Having run Mutant Year Zero, and seen my son's gearhead character in that game, I loved the idea that Yafet was a talented shipbuilder and engineer, but also a craftsman, a man who could make equipment and maybe make a name for himself one day. The Mutant Year Zero gearhead, which is a character archetype rather than a talent, with his or her jury rig skill, can make enduring gear with gear bonuses and other benefits based on the number of successes rolled when making the equipment. That gear then degrades over time, as there's a chance it will be damaged or suffer wear and tear every time it's used, although it can be repaired. I love this idea of being able to craft anything. It gives free reign to my imagination and is something I can play about with between games to keep the momentum going. This idea of using the downtime between games to develop stuff is one I've used before and really enjoy, most recently with my Clan Mantis Shugenja character in Legend of the Five Rings called Moshi Azamuku. Azamuku is a spell-crafting samurai with an emphasis on spell research, and between games I get to think up new and exciting spells for Azamuku to discover. It keeps the conversation going, as with Matthews and my group, we live so far apart that we only get together every couple of months. But back to Yafet. With all this in mind, I didn't hesitate to choose the gearhead talent for him, assuming it would play like the gearhead in Mutant Year Zero without reading the detail too closely. In our first session, I played the talent based on my assumptions, and Matthew did allow me to use it to develop a plus three encryption for our team communications network. But in playing Yafet, we found that the talent doesn't do what I expected. In fact, when I looked into it more closely with Matthew, we saw the gearhead talent does little more than the technology skill itself. So let's have a look and what the book says about the gearhead talent. Gearhead. You love tinkering with gear and equipment. With a successful technology test, you can repair an item or jury-rig a one-use contraption for a specific task. The number of sixes on your roll determines the gear bonus of the item. Now compare that with a technology skill description, which says... This skill is used when handling machines, mechanics, electronics, and explosives. You can repair anything from a small gadget to a spaceship. And a critical success is described as you reach your goal as well as achieving some unexpected bonus effect. So that is all we have to go on. But it does seem the only benefit if you take this talent, and remember there are some damn powerful talents to choose from, is the chance, as the talent description says, to jury-rig a one-use contraption, 
Hmm. Just being able to make the odd one-shot item seems a bit limiting for the high price of a whole talent, and a bit disappointing, not to mention being barely distinguishable from the technology skill itself. Especially when you apply some unexpected bonus effect to a successful technology role. As I said, I took the gearhead talent in Coriolis to make Yafet a talented ship's engineer, but it also added to the flavour of his backstory as an indentured apprentice shipbuilder in the Zalosian shipyards on Karmaruk. This, in my mind, made him a craftsman who can craft items rather than just lash them up in the way the gearhead talent seems to offer. I thought about how I could rectify this imbalance. I considered the idea of introducing the concept of second-tier talents, those that build on the talents in the book and that you buy with XP as an advancement on the talent you already had. In this sense, Gearhead would be the Tier 1 talent, with perhaps Inventor being the Tier 2 advancement. But that still left me with the nagging worry that Gearhead as a talent in itself just wasn't cutting the mustard. And if we added Inventor as a second tier talent, a player would be spending 10 experience points on an ability that was probably worth only 5. So I put that thought to one side, although I like the general principle of second tier talents, so I might come back to that idea another day. What I was left with was the need to revise the existing gearhead talent, to weave in the additional concepts that a mutant year zero gearhead with their jury rig skill would have. And this is what I came up with, our talent of the episode. The gearhead talent version two, or the tweaked gearhead talent. You love crafting gear and equipment. With a successful technology test, you can make any engineering, mechanical, electronic, or explosive item, as well as jury rig one-shot items from scrap. These are one-use items, but the quality and durability are determined by the number of successes. More complicated or large-scale items, such as advanced weapons or ship modifications, will require a longer duration and or multiple technology roles to successfully complete, at the GM's discretion. To make any item, you will need raw materials and suitable workshop facilities, again at the GM's discretion. The burr cost of the materials should be less than the market price you'd pay in the souks for the item itself. The effectiveness of the item is determined by the number of successes, each success giving a cumulative plus one bonus. However, the item will break after one use unless the player spends one success in giving the item the enduring feature. This feature means the gear will degrade only by the GM's use of darkness points, reducing the bonus by one per darkness point spent, simulating the wear and tear on the item. If an item is reduced to a negative minus one bonus, it breaks beyond repair. Until that point, the player can repair the item with a technology roll, restoring plus one point of bonus per success up to the item's original maximum, but not beyond it. If the repair roll is failed, the item doesn't suffer any further damage, but remains at its current bonus level. This now becomes its new maximum, and the item cannot be repaired above that new bonus level. Cost 
five experience points. Well, Dave, that was uh, really interesting. Um, we ought to give that a go, I think, in in our campaign when we get to play uh, that again, which I think will probably be in November, actually, so there might be a bit of time to wait. Yeah, um, unfortunately. I've got a couple of concerns, or I've got uh, one observation and one concern. Let's do concerns. the concern first. Concerns? Yeah, I'm not convinced that this degradation is ever going to happen. If I spend a darkness point, I know you're going to do a, a technician role to um, to repair it. So I can't imagine that these things are ever going to degrade over time. Well, I, I would use my, uh, my experience from Mutant Year Zero... Uh, to sort of counter your uh, your your concern there. So when um, when a weapon degrades, you 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 wouldn't necessarily be in a position to automatically repair it there and then. And the repair might be a uh, long action. It might be something that you would need to spend an hour over, say. So in the heat of combat, you you may well find that you could degrade the weapon once or twice before they had a chance to get back to the ship and and repair it. Then on the repair roll, if you fail that roll, you uh, you then reset that item's bonus level down to what it is. So if you had an item that was plus three, it got degraded down to plus one. You made your repair roll. Uh, you then failed that roll. That item's maximum bonus would then be plus one. You couldn't right. you couldn't go above that. So you would it would it would degrade. Uh, again, I guess it depends on on the GM how many darkness points they had and how willing they were to spend them on degrading items in that in that way. For me, I I found that again in the last game I ran, I had a lot of darkness points and I was struggling to spend them. So I've come out of it at the end with quite a big handful of points. And having something like this as a fairly regular, if not you know maybe not frequent but regular uh, spend of darkness points would be quite a useful mechanic. Right. Well, you know, I save all my darkness points for you, Dave, or yes, for your I know, character. I know. So, so yeah, that, we'll, we'll we'll see. We'll see how it works yeah. out. Uh, the other observation I wanted to make was, you know, uh, I think it's really interesting that you spot there isn't that much of a difference between the gearhead talent and basically making a technology role. Yeah. And it made me wonder when I was thinking about it and listening, whether uh, there's a thing there about. Well, it's interesting you just mentioned, and I don't think I was aware until you specified it, that the repair would happen, for example, back on their ship, uh, that it couldn't be something that could be necessarily done in the field. And I wondered whether that was one of the differences between a technology role and um, the the gearhead talent, that the technology role assumes you can get access to the relevant parts to make whatever repair you need to do, yeah. whereas the gearhead talent is a little bit, if you like, Apollo 13, and it's... You know, I might well have spent a darkness <laughs> point to say you haven't got this vital component to do this repair. And so, you know, you have to use the gearhead talent to make a bodge job with a bit of plastic tubing and a, an electric toothbrush or, or something like that. Yeah, I think it depends on uh, your GM's interpretation of the, uh, the technology critical success outcome. So where it says uh, you, you get some unexpected bonus effect... As a GM, uh, with the technology role, if you were to very narrowly interpret that, then the difference between technology as a skill and the gearhead talent would be would be a bit broader. If you were being a bit more generous, and I know that's not in your character as a GM, Matt, but 
Um, if you were to be a bit more generous about your interpretation of that some unexpected bonus effect, then actually the two things become much more similar. And yeah. again, it just feels to me that the gearhead talent isn't then worth five, five XP. No. So some you the, see, by not being generous, I'm actually making the gearhead talent as it stands a lot more valuable to you. You see, so my not being generous is actually in its way a sort of reverse generosity. <laughs> I didn't really follow your logic there, Matt. I'm not going to try. <laughs> anyway, um, we've talked the, about repairing ships. Let's other, actually talk sorry, about more, destroying them. Well, um, before we get now, there, there's one more point I wanted to make. Oh, right. Well, two more points I wanted to make actually about the the talent. So I included in the in the talent the uh, the the very specific line that um, you know, as well as crafting gear and equipment you can jury rig one-shot items from scrap. Now, what I was thinking on there was, again, sort of more in the traditional gearhead talent space where if you're uh, out somewhere where you were, you know, you're out in the field, you could lash something together. So I didn't want to, you know, to exclude that from this talent, I would, but I just wanted to make sure that um, people understood what I meant by that. The other mm. thing that I thought we might want to talk about later is this concept of second tier talents. So if we're creating new talents, is there, a, is there an opportunity to do a second tier talent that builds on other talents uh, in the book? So I haven't sort of a uh, skill tree, as it were. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Or talent tree, I guess we ought to call it. Yeah, I haven't yeah. looked at it in any great detail, but I just thought it might be something that's worth having a think about and getting people's views on if they've got ideas of talents that have got obvious second tiers to them that, that would really, really be useful in the game. Hmm, that's worth exploring, perhaps in a future episode. Yeah. Right, well, I, 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 but I'm still keen on uh, getting to know about how to take ships apart. Um, <laughs> I haven't had the opportunity in either of the scenarios that I've run so far to um, practice space combat, whereas I know you have. So yep. uh, I'm going to be your Padawan. Um, <laughs> As always. In, in this in this <laughs> circumstance, not as always. Most of the time, I am the master. But uh, <laughs> oh dear, dear. but this I, time, I, I, I will bow to your on. greater experience, Dave. Um, and I'd like you to talk me through space combat and particularly what you've learned from running it practically in yeah. a few sessions. Okay, but uh, um, yeah, so... Once I was the learner, now I am the master. Anyway. Exactly. <laughs> moving swiftly on. Uh, yeah, so I think the first thing I'd say is um, the, the rules for Space Combat do look quite complicated, but when you actually play them through a couple of times, uh, it does make an awful lot more, a lot more sense. But the way they've designed it really makes for a really great group experience. In many games we've played before with Space Combat, yeah, it's it's largely one character gets to do it all and everybody else sits tight and hopes for the best. In this one, everybody has a role, which I really, really like. But I think the first thing I'll just say is a bit of an overview. Um, there are certain stats that your ship has, which are critical, obviously, to, uh, to space combat. And these are um, maneuverability, which uh, gives a bonus uh, or a negative to your piloting roles. Signature which is obviously how easy your ship is to, to see, to spot, and to lock on, and armour, which is obviously you know, uh, explains itself. But in the game, each ship has five crew positions that you need to, you need to cover. Uh, there's the captain. Uh, his primary role is to uh, manage initiative and give orders, which I'll explain a bit in a moment. 
the engineer, who has a key role in distributing the energy of the ship each turn to everybody else. Pilot, again, makes up you know, obviously what the pilot does. Uh, sensor operator, who will, you know, key things for him is putting on the sensor lock and trying to break the sensor lock of enemy ships. And then the gunner, who obviously fires your guns, but also is in control of your, your defensive measures, your, your ECM or your point defense. But there are, there are ships that don't have as many as five crew, and there are ships that have many more than five crew. So um, there are rules around um, how you manage um, how you manage the uh, the crew positions when you don't have a crew member to uh, to fill that slot. So for some of the smaller ships where you, know, you won't have a crew of five, they are specifically designed to allow one character to play two roles. So the captain would also be the pilot. Uh, the engineer would also be the sensor operator. But in those smaller ships, they're specifically designed to cater for that. So you get no negative. On a bigger ship where you haven't got that specific design in the ship itself, if a character is trying to fulfill two roles, the second role comes with a minus two, a minus two modifier to, to, to making that, uh, taking those actions. And the detail for all that is on page 170 in the book, if, um, if you wanted to to have a look at that at any point. Yeah, uh, I noticed that. And I noticed that actually after you guys rolled up um, or created your ship and crew for the first session that we ran. Yes. And you you guys definitely wanted to have a class three ship, but there are only three of you. And we talked a bit about how you'd double up. Obviously, uh, Andy as pilot would also take the captain role. I think... Um, uh, You've taken two roles as well, aren't you? You're doing engineering and sensor ops. Yeah, so so Yafet is uh, engineer and, yeah, so I took the sensor ops role as so well. So the way I read this um, rule on, um, or these rules on page 170, is that you are taking on that, um, that minus two penalty. You, you've got a class three ship and you've got three crew. Now, you can fly a class two ship with three crew, with with people taking on those extra roles, the data gen and the technology roles, both rolled by the engineer, um, the pilot and the captain make those roles. But if you were flying a class two ship, there wouldn't be a penalty because you guys have chosen to take a class three ship on and to try and run that with three people. There's that minus two penalty. Yeah, I, um, I think there's a debate to be had here. Um, so I I can I can get that an engineer fulfilling a second role would, you know, particularly sensor ops role, would struggle to do the two things on a ship that wasn't designed for it. I get that. So I think absolutely Yafet should be suffering from a minus two penalty for whichever one he does second, which would probably be sensor ops because the engineering role is very important. But I think for the... Well, no, no, no. Let's just be specified here. Um, that's minus two on every action a crew member performs. Is it? She gets a minus two on all her actions. So, Ooh. sorry, for every extra action a crew member performs, she gets a minus two to all her actions. Ah, I hadn't read that. So bit. the okay. example they use here is when a single person's trying to run a ship that needs five people, then she, if she wants to act in every phase, all her actions carry a minus eight modifier. <laughs> okay. 
Right, right. So it isn't about saying, well, I'm the engineer, yeah. so I'm, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll take minus two on my data gin. It's actually saying, if you're trying to be data gin and engineer, yep. it's minus two on both those roles. Okay, that's fine. I think in principle, the principle that Yafet should suffer the penalty, whatever it is, is fine. That, that makes that makes sense. We obviously need to get ourselves uh, an AI that can do the sensor ops. But for the yeah. for the pilot and the captain, it feels to me, as a GM anyway, that it, it becomes a bit unfair to give uh, the captain the negative for both. So I would I would I would potentially argue that if the pilot is doubling up as captain, that's fine. But if say Yafet is doubling up as engineer and sensor ops, then he suffers the penalty. Yeah, but I guess there is a thing that you don't necessarily need to make the captain role, do you? Well, the captain doesn't actually make. Well, the role he makes is the is command. Um, yeah. When giving, when giving, uh, for initiative and when giving orders. Yeah. So, but I'm saying that therefore, you know, effectively that command role, if you like, creates a bit of a bonus. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So we can come to that in a moment. But um, I guess the, yeah. the question is, uh, and it's up to each individual GM how they want to play it, how they feel comfortable, but whether they want for somebody doubling up as captain who just shouts evade or attack or whatever as their command, whether that deserves a minus two penalty on both the command and its piloting role. Yeah. I guess it's. Well, I think it's obviously you know you know my level of generosity. I, I think you know which way we're going to be swinging <laughs> as soon as you guys get into combat. We need a. We need so we need not to get into combat or to get an AI quickly. <laughs> or maybe maybe we should, until you bought yourself an AI or two. <laughs> maybe we should hire some NPCs. <laughs> maybe. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, that that that's about your campaign. I, I what I'm interested or yeah, our campaign, I should say. What I'm really interested in though is the, the combat itself. Yeah. So I think what I'll do is just briefly talk you through how how the how the turns work, um, and then we can get on to uh, how you actually go about blowing things up. So each uh, each of the crew positions, each uh, each member of the crew fulfilling those roles gets a turn uh, in each uh, gets an action in each turn. So there are five of them. As I said, the captain goes first, followed by the engineer, then the pilot, then the centre operator, and finally the gunner. Now in the in the Coriolis icon deck are five cards that very helpfully list uh, the the actions that each of those roles can do. And as a little tip, what I did was I took those five cards, I lined them up on my scanner, and I, I made a photocopy of them onto one sheet. So everyone gets a sheet of paper with, with each, uh, each, uh, each role on it, which just makes life a little bit easier. So at the beginning of the combat, mm. the, the captain uh, rolls for initiative. It's a command role. Whichever captain gets highest obviously gets to go first the captain can then give orders and those orders are uh, things like repair uh, retreat evade attack and they then give bonuses if he succeeds on his command role they give bonuses to people uh, in the crew if they follow if they take actions that follow his orders they're not obliged to and interestingly we've had some really uh, heated debates in my group about what action we should take and then the captain says I'm telling you to attack. And the engineer then immediately distributes energy to do something different because he doesn't think they should be attacking. It makes a really good little dynamic in the group. Mm. So the, the crew don't have to follow the captain's orders, but they get a bonus to their die roll if they do. The next one in line is the engineer. And he's a really critical 
position because he distributes the energy points that your ship has. So your ship, uh, you know, depending on the size. So our ship in uh, in in your campaign map, um, Mukafar, as it's called, or the Bounty, uh, has five mm -hmm. energy points, and the engineer each turn gets to distribute those amongst the other positions depending on what actions they want to take because just about every action costs energy not not all of them but a lot of them do so he then distributes those depending upon what they've agreed or what he thinks they should be doing he also has some other other actions he can take so energy in space combat is a really key uh, resource and five energy won't go very won't go very far at all so there is a thing called overload the reactor which the engineer can do uh, should he wish to and that means he he pushes the reactor he gets extra energy points for that turn but by pushing the reactor he damages the hull so the ship will take damage from him trying to do that interestingly in the game that gotcha. in the games that we've run there was a uh, a thought initially that actually maybe on the very first turn you should push you should uh, overload the reactor get yourself some energy for that first turn so you really hit your enemy really hard but uh, mm -hmm. You know, I didn't, it's, it's such a double-edged sword because you could take two or three hull damage from doing that. Now, if your ship, say like ours, has got hull of six, that's kind of half of your hull gone straight away, potentially. And if the other ship get, lands a big hit on you and your hull goes to zero, you've lost. You're out. That's, that's it. So it's a risky strategy. So it might be best used just as a, uh, you know, a, a last-ditch emergency escape plan rather than as part of your actual combat tactic but it's there, yeah. it's there to be used. But the engineer also gets to do things like repair the hull, repair the energy systems. So if you've lost hull or you've lost energy points, the, the, the engineer can repair those. Right, in the middle of combat. In the middle of combat, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So there's an interesting thing here about um, turn length as well in space combat. Uh, so the rules say that turns in space combat are longer than turns in normal combat. They don't specify how much longer, but they just say each turn should be a few minutes, which is fine. It's all well and good um, until you come to the point where you've got a boarding action maybe happening at the same time as a space combat. So that would then, yeah, I haven't been in that position yet as a GM. You'd need to work out quite how you would, um, how you would run that, uh, run that, run that way of the game because you might end up with. Uh, if you did it like for like, you'd end up with six or eight or ten combat rounds of uh, melee combat or ranged combat to every single space combat round, which mm. might not be a good balance. So uh, I haven't decided what we'll do with that when it when it happens. It hasn't happened yet, but that's something to think about. Yeah, I'm going to have to try and organise some sort of uh, boarding action for our first space combat that I run, and we can test that out. Eh? Yeah, absolutely. Sounds good. Yeah. I'm up for that. Uh, the, soon, the sooner we get off flying our ship with all the bloody negatives you're going to give us, the better. <laughs> so the th exactly. <laughs> so the third um, role then is pilot, and the pilot, as the name suggests, manoeuvres the ship, and he can do a number of things such as uh, close with an enemy ship, try and escape from an enemy ship, um, evade uh, to reduce the chances of being hit, or ramming is another option that they can use, uh, as well as yeah. Now this is. This is kind of interesting, isn't it? Talking about manoeuvring the ship and and ramming the ship. The the space combat map that they have at the back of the book, pages uh, yeah. three seven two, three seven three, 
looks more like an American football field <laughs> yeah. uh, grid than than what you might expect. You know, most space combat stuff you see often, you know, is a hex grid, which isn't necessarily terribly realistic. Um, yeah. This this map kind of abstracts things. It does. And it, it is only two dimensional, but actually, it's talking about the relative distance between the ships, and that's all, isn't it? It is, and it works. Uh, I think a lot of games that I've played with with space combat in them get themselves sort of tied up in in knots a little bit, or or complicated rules and mechanics about trying to reflect some kind of space combat movement, which actually isn't space combat because it's usually a bit more like dogfighting, which you know if you're if you're being a bit purist about it, that's not really how it happens in space. That's not how space combat would happen at all. No, exactly. Right. It's how it happens in Star Wars, yeah. But, yeah. but not in physics. No. So in this one, it's, it's, uh, it, it gets rid of all of that by, as you say, conceptualising the, the distances in space. And you just don't worry about it. And it, it actually works really well. So I haven't felt uh, any kind of negative concern or impact of that sim- really simple way of managing range and distance in space, which I think it works really well. Uh, do you actually use the map? Or can you actually n- not bother with the map at all? Just say, you know, you are one, two, three, four, five apart, whatever. Yeah, absolutely. You've got absolutely no need to use the map whatsoever. So the distance is relative. If uh, if the two ships are coming together, that relative distance will come down quickly. If you're trying to get apart or chasing somebody, then that relative distance will change less dramatically. But so yeah, you don't need to use so, it at all. What have you actually done? Have you have you had a map on the table? What, a grid on the table? What I've, what, one should say. What I've done is taken a uh, an A4 piece of paper and drawn some pa- pencil lines across it rapidly there and then, and stuck a couple of uh, X-wing models down on it as uh, as the ships. So it's well, that's a good choice. So it doesn't hurt. It doesn't hurt to mm. uh, to do that. It, but you don't have to. Right. Gotcha. Um, so then you have the sensor operator, who then comes, who comes next, um, and his role, his or her role, is largely around um, locking the target, breaking a target lock on your ship, because there are some weapons that that can't, they can't be used unless you've got a target lock. So torpedoes can't be used unless you've got a target lock on the enemy ship. Other weapons, right. other weapons gain a bonus if there's a target lock, but they don't need a target lock in order to to fire. But torpedoes have to have a target lock. Which actually brings me on to an interesting thing that, that's come up in my games. So uh, there have been quite a lot of torpedoes fired uh, in the games that I've been running, by both, uh, well certainly against our, uh, our heroes. And when they fire them, they then they have a target lock. And the torpedoes move at two units of, of range per turn. So they might take a couple of turns to hit. In the meantime, whilst those torpedoes have been flying... The guys have then broken the, the target lock. Now the ruling I've made is that mm. once that target lock is made and the torpedoes are fired, they're going to hit unless you shoot them down or you use ECMs against them. But that might not be appropriate. So I've been thinking about it. Um, there's nothing in the rules that I've found to, uh, to, to say whether or not the torpedoes would then automatically miss if a target lock is broken between them being fired and them hitting. But I think there's there's an argument to be said that that might be a, a sensible ruling. But the ruling I've gone yeah, there's, that's a really interesting. There's arguments on both sides of that, isn't it? You know, the the you you have the target lock, and then 
effectively the, the, the torpedo's got its own guidance system and as soon as you've acquired the target, it's doing its own thing. Yes. Or alternatively, it could be a little bit like, you know, uh, laser-guided bombs in, in, in our world now that actually it still needs the laser. It needs you to be pointing at the target so it can guide it. Yeah. And it, yeah. So, I, so, so mm. I've made the former call of those two so far. Um, but I'm not convinced that that's the right one. It's just the call I made on the day when it first came up and I've stuck with it. Um, but yeah, I've been interested to hear other people's other people's views on, on, on how that ought to play out. Uh, yeah, if any listeners have got views or had that and made a ruling, would be interested to yeah, hear what you've got to say. Yeah, very much. Um, the other thing that the sensor operator can do uh, is mask the ship. But that can only happen if they've taken the uh, the stealth tech feature so my players on their ship have got the stealth tech feature which reduces their signature generally makes them harder to spot but also allows them to to drop off screens in combat so again there's there's no clear ruling on exactly what it means but what i've taken it to mean is it's a method of um breaking the it's another method of of breaking target lock which then means that the bad guys have to reacquire them and then redo a target lock. So they've got to do two things to reacquire them. They've got to detect them, and then they've got to target lock them. And that seems to work quite yeah. well. So that's so that. Yeah, it's not cloaking. It's not um, no a Star Trek style invisible ships, no. is it? No, not at all. It's it's no. it's you know imagine sort of stealth tech that we have today with your stealth bombers and stealth aircraft. It's just that which makes them harder to detect and, and easier to lose. Yeah, and it's and I'm imagining it, you know, uh, more like um, uh, running interference, so chaff, for example, or whatever. Yeah. So it's actually um, trying to counteract the signal, trying to trick um, the other ship into into losing target lock. Yeah, absolutely, and losing detection as well. So it's not just breaking target yeah. lock. Um, it's an interesting thing about detection. So uh, at, at the at the beginning of a combat. Uh, the two t- the two ships or the ships that are going to be fighting one another clearly have to detect one another, um, and there are ways of of reducing your chances of being detected if you want to if you want to avoid the combat or move stealthily. One of them is you turn your transponder off, and I talked a bit about that in the update from uh, the Spectral Corsair campaign. That's relatively straightforward to do. It's kind of illegal if you're not a military vessel, and if you get caught mm. doing it, yeah, there'll be bad things, uh, bad outcomes for you. Um, but it does mean that you're not automatically detected. If you've got your transponder on and you move within another another ship's sensor range, they will automatically detect you. But with it off, they'll have to do a, a sensor ops roll to find you. The other thing you can do is shut down your reactor, which then gives you another uh, an extra bonus to your signature, which makes you even harder to spot. But the problem with that is it can take, depending on the size of ship, well, it will take hours at least to uh, to get the reactor up and running again. On a big ship, it could take a day or more even. So that's quite a quite a drastic thing to do. But again, it makes you much more, much harder to spot generally. Yeah. But I, again, you know, that makes me think of uh, those old um, black and white, or maybe I can't remember whether they're black and white or colour, but submarine films, silent running yes. and things like that. Uh, Not... I don't say silent running. That's about as <laughs> no, but yes. three cute robots. That's very true. Uh, but yeah, um, classic old movie. Film, people haven't Pacific seen it. Pacific War films is the one. If you haven't seen Silent Running, get it and see it. It's a classic old movie. Anyway, carry on. Sorry, Matt. Yes, <laughs> it is a great movie. 
great movie, but it's not the one I'm thinking of. I'm thinking of ones with clean-cut American sailors in submarines yes. blowing up uh, Japanese ships is, is what I'm thinking of, and often having to hide from them. Yes. Yeah. Thanks for that digression, Matt. That's cool. <laughs> but the final role on board ship is that is that of the gunner, um, and he obviously uh, fires weapons, uh, launches torpedoes, uses the countermeasures, but the gunner can only actually use one weapon system uh, at a time, each turn. So he or she will have to choose whether to fire a weapon offensively or whether he wants to wait and use his defensive measures against an incoming torpedo. So our, my, my group, uh, Spectral Corsair, with you know the one-gunner position, have found themselves being very defensive, sitting back and shooting down or using their ECM against incoming torpedoes uh, rather than being more aggressive simply because they didn't want to take the hit uh, of, a, of a torpedo against them. On bigger ships... Do they have torpedoes? I mean, I'm just thinking, is there a tactic about you loosing your torpedo, then while that's doing its job for the next two turns, you get into a defensive mode? Or maybe um, is there any advantage to in the turn when the torpedo is about to hit then giving it full welly with your other gun whatever that is um yeah so in terms of point defense the the auto cannon is is the only weapon that can be used to shoot down incoming torpedoes but the ecm the electronic countermeasures obviously are designed for exactly that and in game terms they have exactly the same effect Um, but obviously it's just narratively it's done differently so there, yeah, I think there are plenty of of tactics to be to be tried. The guys, I'm off the top of my head, I don't remember if they've got torpedoes or not. But because they've been up against Zelosians in space combat, and the Zelosians have the best torpedo that there is in the Third Horizon, the the antimatter torpedo, they've obviously been coming up against quite a lot of those. So they've been they've, <laughs> they've been the victim of it rather than uh, the perpetrator. Rather than yeah. But on but on bigger ships, on bigger ships. You have the the potential for uh, there to be more gunnery positions and have more gunners, so you could then have more weapons being fired. I haven't again. I haven't come across any particular rules about how many gunnery positions a class four or class five ship could have. Um, I probably will make something up because I think there is a, you know, uh, I I have designed some of my NPC ships with more gunnery positions. Uh, for my Spectral Corsair campaign, but without any kind of mechanic. I've just done the GM, I'm God thing, and put them in because I, I wanted to. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't think there's any harm in that, is there? No. Are you saying that as a player group, if we had six players in a group, then the obvious thing for the six player to do is to be a second gunner? Yes, absolutely. Right. I, I guess the other thing, you could have a second engineer if you wanted to, because you could then make more repairs each turn. Um, but one engineer would have to be the chief engineer who would then allocate the energy, but the secondary engineer mm. could then take actions to, you know, repair the ship or, or, or you know, what, something else. But I think, yeah. I think there, need, yeah. there needs to be a cost, like a module cost for adding a gunnery position to a ship. I haven't looked at it in detail yet, uh, but I think that's something that I should, I should consider uh, in the next few weeks, really. Mm. So those are the positions and those are the, the, the main things that they all get to do. But you have to remember that they can only do most of them if they've had energy allocated to them by the engineer. Um, a, a good example of one that isn't, though, uh, torpedoes. They can be fired without using energy, 
but other weapons will need energy to, to fire them. Uh, so there are some things right. in there that don't need energy, but on the whole, you need to have your energy from your from your engineer. Yeah. So it's quite expensive. Oh, well, the, the, the pilot, so basically the cost for any of the actions that the pilot makes is uh, you have to have energy equal to the class of ship. So for us, with our Mukafar, our class 3 ship, every pilot action requires three energy. A ship with only five energy, yeah. that only leaves us two to do other things. So you're not... And that was one of the reasons why you were so keen to have a class 3 ship as opposed to a class 2 ship, was the amount of energy Absolutely. that it would generate. Yeah. Mm. So, uh, as I said before, energy is such a key resource in space, in space combat. So then, when you've fired something, um, so the rate, uh, obviously you take hits and you, you, you die a lot. Um, so there's a, quite a wide range of weapons that you can have, and they're on page 150 of the book. Um, and they would do, combat works very similarly to, uh, to, to normal combat. So you have a, a weapon that might have a, uh, a bonus uh, allied with it, because it's a beneficial weapon for, for certain circumstances. They will have a range that they can only fire within, um, and then your gunner will roll his ranged combat skill in the same way as if he was firing a gun um, with his agility uh, agility stat plus the bonus of the weapon and that is your uh, your attack dice right again with the same with ranged combat or with, with normal combat one success means you deal the damage of the weapon successes over and above that give you other other effects and again, space weapons have a crit value in the same way that normal weapons do. And if you get the right number of successes, you can then roll a crit um, against the ship. Yeah, and your your players had a crit against them, didn't they? they in, didn't you say last they time, did. last episode? We... They did. So the crit the crit table uh, is on page one hundred and seventy two, um, and that's a two d six die roll to determine what the crit is. Um, they had a bridge. So just to be really clear there, so you're saying 2d6, that is uh, 2 to 12, yes. not d66. Yep. Yep, thank you for that correction, Matthew. Um, absolutely. It's, well, no, no, I, uh, not a correction, it's a clarification. That's what I, um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so if a module gets hit, uh, that module decompresses. Um, they had a hit against the bridge, where three of them were in the bridge, so they all immediately suffered explosive decompression, which is an automatic critical roll on them on the on the crit damage table for people for the players, which is really quite quite bad. Um, the other thing that you will get, obviously, so so that was they, um, I'm just looking at this table now. So they were all in the bridge, and you rolled a ten for the crit. Is that right? That's correct. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, that was, I mean, I, 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 I talked about the outcome of that um, last last time, but there are a range of crits there. A double six um, is a reactor hit. The ship will explode. Um, that's going to be bad, obviously. Uh, but also the weapons will do hit point damage or uh, energy damage. Now, if the ship gets to zero energy, uh, it's disabled. The reactor is knocked offline. It's dead in the water. But there's no further consequence. So the people on board the ship are okay, but the ship is just dead. If you get to zero hull points, zero HP, then the superstructure of the ship is breaking apart. The ship suffers decompression. The players will all suffer explosive decompression, critical hit against them, 
and the ship is dead in the water. So it's uh, it, it's pretty bad. It's not it's not the ship destroyed. Uh, the ship can still be repaired from that position, but it's it's completely done. You're there's there's no there's no kind of um, coming back from zero hull points in the way there's there is coming back from zero hit points uh, for being broken in... to to continue doing some action. There's no kind of right. there's no kind of medicurgy for the ship to bring it back from zero. Once you hit zero, yeah, so you're defeated. So in personal combat, actually, hit points are more like concussion, aren't they? You you can only really die from criticals. Absolutely, yeah. You can't but you can't die from being it... broken. You can only die from crits. Yeah. Yeah, whereas it looks like the ship can actually be pretty dead in the dead in the space from losing hull points. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And that that's pretty much um, uh, a run through of uh, of everything that goes in into uh, into space combat. It's it does. That's really good. I've got one question now. I'm just looking at that um, uh, that critical hit table, and um, I'm reading uh, ten destroyed bridge. The captain, pilot, and sensor operator can no longer perform their actions. The engineer and gunner stations are not normally on the bridge. It says so they can act normally. So I'm just wondering whether that's implying that the engineering, sorry, that the gunner station is with the gun. But then I guess mm. it's got more than one weapon system to manage. Yeah. So, so I think the yeah. way the way I the way I played it and the way the guys uh, on the Spectral Corsair were happy um, was that everybody was based on the bridge, with the exception of the engineer who was in engineering, um, mm. and that that was how we that was how we played it. I guess you could specify that the gunner is somewhere else, and that would actually reduce the effect of of losing your bridge. I guess you could still you could still at least fire your guns. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Mm, interesting. Right. Well, I'm just I've got an eye on time as always. You know me, the timekeeper, and we're 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 heading towards a long one. Well, we've um, been encouraged to to get longer, <laughs> and we, we have so been encouraged to. You're we don't right. want to go too long, though. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, so uh, my feeling is, after all that tension, all that sweaty work aboard a ship, um, we ought to talk a bit about what player characters would really want to do after a dreadful space combat like that and that is have a bath well let's hear about that then life on board ship is dirty and restricted water is a carefully rationed resource on board after weeks in space and considerable time in stasis during portal jumps what crews want most is a bath most spaceports have a hammam or a bathhouse, either within the spaceport itself or very nearby. Samar's hammam is typical of many medium-sized facilities, which may be found on pretty much any world. Samar's is privately owned and run by Samar herself, a kindly but uncompromising mirren of more years than it is polite to ask. She will often be there to greet you in the building's welcoming atrium, with its glass-domed roof, lush greenery and cooling ornamental pool. Samar knows people. She has an excellent memory for names and faces and will greet you like an old friend even if this is only your second visit. She is careful to ask after the health of your relatives and she'll remember the names of your children even if you've been on the other side of the horizon for years. If you need to find someone or hire someone, or meet someone, Samar can put you in touch. She is often made matchmaker in marriages too. 
With nine mind points and six hit points, she rolls nine dice of manipulation before any difference in reputation is taken into account. Her reputation is six, by the way, despite rumours of lowly beginnings. She rolls ten for observation and eight for culture. It is said, though she insists it isn't true, that she has a little skill in medicurgy too. With payment, priced well within your general cost of living budget, discreetly made, you are ushered into the bathhouse's central temple, dedicated, like that of many hammams serving spacers, to the deckhand. Most crew choose to offer the icon a prayer and toss a few burr into the pool that surrounds the statue before progressing into the segregated changing rooms. It's in the temple that you'll often find a Nadal, the boy of indeterminate years, who works for Samar as cleaner, messenger and general dog's body. It is said he knows every shortcut in the spaceport, any shortcut in the city even. It is said that he was found abandoned in the hammam as a baby. If that's true, and if it's also true that Samar brought him up, it's notable that she never displays anything like motherly love for the child. People will tell you that they trust Al-Nadal with secret messages, which he will run for you in exchange for a few burr, that he will never share them. It's true, he is quiet, hardly speaking at all in fact, but if anyone has ever tested his loyalty with more burr, well, they're saying nothing. Al-Nadal has just five hit points and seven mind points. He runs like a devil though and rolls eight for dexterity. The scrappy kid rolls seven for survival and five for melee combat, but no one seems that bothered in trying to hurt him. It is whispered that when Samar sees her last sunset, Al-Nadal will run the hammam. Many smaller bathhouses don't segregate between male and female facilities, and some even offer mixed facilities with discrete spaces for more intimate couples. Here, though, all the facilities are mirrored on each side of the building, offering each sex the same sequence of rooms. There are private disrobing rooms, where you leave your clothes before stepping into the lavatorium to shower. Once clean, you can lounge as long as you like in the steam room. Since time immemorial, such spaces are often used for private meetings, and Samar's staff will, for a few burr, ensure that you are not disturbed. When you are ready for your massage, you can step through into the next room, where a strong-fingered masseuse is waiting to rub the tension out of your back, limbs and scalp. Then you can jump into the cold plunge pool, and put on a warm toweling robe before relaxing in the tepidarium, where you will find your clothes laundered, aired and pressed no matter how short a time you spent in the baths. There is always a cast iron pot of rose tea waiting for you too, but staff will also bring snacks and drinks from nearby bars if you so desire. Thus, the tepidarium is a place to socialise if you want to make a point of being seen with whoever you are meeting. In play, I see Samar's hammam as an alternative meeting place to Wahab's cantina. After all, starting an adventure, or seeking work, information, or passage to the older baron system in a bar has been done yeah, once or twice before. The idea of a hammam is also more evocative of that Middle Eastern feel and redolent of the strictures of space travel too. 
I'd like to make it a place where the player characters feel safe, a place where they can return to every time they hit the docks, where they can catch up on the local gossip, relax and recuperate after a tough adventure. It's a place they should feel able to invite contacts to, or accidentally meet high-ranking factionaries who would otherwise never be seen with the PCs. But they shouldn't feel too safe. One of my favourite movie fights ever is in the underrated Eastern Promises, when a naked Viggo Mortensen is attacked in a Turkish bath. Well, I don't know about you, Matthew, but I want to visit Samar's Hammam straight away. Uh, as long as, uh, as long as we don't have a fight like that you referenced in Eastern, Eastern Promises, I just looked that up on YouTube and had a watch, and that is brutal. If you don't like it, so. If you don't like violent fights in your movies, don't watch it. But if you do, no, th- go and see it because it's uh, it's uh, it's really quite brutal. But it's one of the the most realistic fights, I think. You know, I uh, I'm, I'm all for sort of hyper violent fights that you see in movies like um, John Wick, where yeah, you know, guys are taking so much damage and yet you know, still carrying on fighting. Yeah, this one, this one though, feels so realistic and so dreadful it's quite visceral it makes you want to not be a member of the russian mafia <laughs> oh well i'll go and resign then you know to, yeah i would if only i'd know if only i'd known eh yeah <laughs> but no i think uh, I, yeah i really and like the idea it, of having a uh you know a, a a safe place that isn't the ship where the players the characters go and unwind and it's as you say in the piece it's a it's a hub where um, yeah, they can recuperate, and my players in the Spectral Corsair campaign could really do with somewhere to recuperate. Um, <laughs> where you know, where scenario ideas will come out, where you can meet people. Um, yeah, I, it was excellent. I really enjoyed that, Matt. Thank you very much. That's brilliant. Um, talking of Spectral Corsair, though, we ought to hear what the latest adventures have been having. Uh, we ought to hear, I should say, about the latest adventures that they've been having. Yes. Well, let's do that. Well, if you remember, at the end of the last scenario, they were uh, hunting down this freighter for uh, some people on the planet Havila. And they'd found it, and they'd found that it was infested with dark morphs by by Ara. But they were fighting their way through to try and recover that ship for their Havilan friends. Which they did. It wasn't easy. They did come across a couple of other Bayara, and there was one excellent moment which um, I managed to engineer where... Morgan, playing the uh, playing Ajit Mia, entered engineering, uh, only to be attacked by a Bayara at exactly the same moment that Hanbal, uh, played by my brother, uh, foolishly opened the door to the med bay, only to realise that there wasn't a med bay anymore. There was only open space. So, <laughs> so everything kind of happened all at once. Um, very good moment. Um, Ajit took a critical wound and was about to die, but was 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 stabilised. Um, but they eventually managed to take the ship finding that there were six devotees trapped on the bridge. And these are the devotees uh, of the hymns of the end times who'd stolen the ship in the first place. And they were very pleased to be rescued um, and quietly went into into their custody uh, as they took control of the ship and took it back to Havila, only to find that uh, on the ship, uh, one of the key cargoes were uh, 50 people, 50 passengers who were in a cargo container in stasis so they'd survived everything that had gone on with uh with the ship being stolen but they were uh they were effectively prisoners of the Havilans. 
So they were mm. so they were all returned back to back to Havila. And those fifty six people, the devotees and the fifty passengers, were taken away to honour the icons, as the Havilans told them. Now the, the guys felt that this sounded a bit ominous. Uh, yeah. and uh, they feared the worst, only to have those fears borne out when it was clear that these innocents were going to be sacrificed over the next seven days uh, in groups of, of eight by being put out through an airlock, a ritual airlock, to die in the toxic atmosphere of the planet. Uh, Valdez, the captain, tried to stop it, but Talay, who was the man that he'd been dealing with, had done a bit of, back, uh, done a bit of homework, and for the low price of one darkness point, he would knew about... Valdez's background as a pirate so his view of him changed markedly they did agree to honour their agreement though to uh, complete the work on the new transponder for them, after all they had rescued Raz al Zika and, and brought it home um, but they had to stop meddling in Havilan affairs and limit themselves exile themselves on board their ship until the work was done Everybody did that with a bit of a heavy heart, with the exception of Carter, who's the, the cybernetic uh, soldier who didn't really give a shit about any of them and had got hold of some Alcasab, uh, the narcotic. That so you mean to say that he didn't have a heavy heart, not that he complied with the, uh, with the, with the, with the agreement? Absolutely, yeah. He didn't, have a, he didn't care about the, 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 the poor sacrificial lambs. And he got some of the drugs and he spent a couple of days off with the fairies whilst they're waiting for the ship to be repaired. <laughs> Um, but they were under a bit of pressure because they heard over the uh, uh, over the radio waves in Havila that Alina, who was their passenger, who uh, had surrendered herself to the Zelosians in order to allow them to escape, and who was a key person for them because she's got the information they need to continue their uh, their campaign mission. Uh, her trial by the Icons had been scheduled for a week hence, and the trial of the Icons consisted of her being put through. Um, the portal between Zalos A and Zalos B, uh, but not in stasis. So she was going through conscious to commune with the icons, and if she came out, if she came out the other end uh, healthy and well, then the icons would have damned her, uh, and therefore yes. she'll be executed. If she goes through and comes through mad, then the icons have done their judgment on her, and she suffered her punishment. So they've now obviously. So yeah. this is this is the the Zalosian version of uh, of the ducking stool. Um, so so they, they were waiting to get their transponder and cutting it really fine but whilst they were waiting they didn't want uh, and particularly Morgan as Ajit Mia didn't want these sacrificial offerings to die and he managed an uh, enormous stroke of luck uh, to do a data gin roll to lock the airlock at the moment that it was supposed to open for them to go out into the toxic atmosphere and he had, he, mm -hmm. he had seven dice and he rolled four sixes uh, and so it didn't go through. The Havilans took it as the judgment of the icons, and those eight people were were saved and freed to live uh, in the community. But Morgan wasn't satisfied with that. He wanted to fuse the thing completely, so none of the none of the sacrifices could happen. So he rolled again, and he got four sixes again. <laughs> so uh, I had him uh, fuse the airlock to the point where the door would never open ever again. It have to be the whole unit would have to be replaced. Uh, and on that basis, all of the sacrificial uh, offerings were, were freed. Uh, all of them survived, and all of them were now living in the Havilan, uh, Havilan settlement. So with this victory and the transponder installed, giving the spectral Corsair the alias identity of Razel Zika, a newly registered Type 3 freighter from the Havilan settlement in Zaos, they set off into the dark 
on what looks like an almost hopeless mission to rescue Alina. And uh, that's where we left off. That sounds brilliant. That sounds like a great episode. It was a really good game. Really good game. Um, and it came up with, there was, uh, it did bring up a, an interesting point for me. So Morgan's behaviour as Ajit, now he's an assassin. You know, he's a covert operator, mm -hmm. but he's clearly an assassin with a big heart. Um, and he tried really hard and he looked really, he was really, really keen to do the right thing and save these, these people from being sacrificed. And I wondered, is there some kind of uh, light point dynamic? And uh, I haven't told anything about this to the players at all, but I wonder whether as a referee, you build up maybe light points uh, without telling the players that they've achieved them, that then can perhaps give you an excuse for some kind of narrative movement or offering some kind of ability or some kind of icon blessing to them in the future. It's a totally mm -hmm. nascent idea that I've just come up with over the last few days since this scenario. But Morgan's effort was so sort of moral and ethical and desperately tried to do the right thing, where the easiest thing was just to go, ah, oh well, never mind. Um, I thought it might deserve some kind of reward. But um, I'll be... Yeah, I, I guess my, my immediate thought would be an extra experience point. Yes, yes. Um, and you That's could good make idea. it, yeah. I don't know what his, what his icon is, but you could kind of make it as being acting in accordance with his icon. You know, that slightly woolly um, uh, experience point that's that's already written there um, that's a really good idea already. actually matt yeah i'm glad i mentioned it um that's exactly mm. what i'm going to do and then that's an obvious reward you know it's not like a secret light point necessarily i quite like yeah I, I think we ought to at some point think this through and and see whether there is a, a light point um mechanic somewhere yeah hidden away but i wouldn't want to see it as a exact opposite of darkness points i don't think it should yeah. be a fate point or a glory point it should have some other... It then gets a bit like Star Wars, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I, and <laughs> I, like. and I kind of felt I didn't want to even mention it to them because I didn't want that dark light dynamic kind of in their minds. I mean, if they listen to yeah. this, then, you know, they might get that. But Obviously, they'll know. I won't, I won't <laughs> emphasise it. But I think your idea of, a, of a, a, an icon-based experience point is actually a really good idea. Yeah, cool. Yeah, I think that's the sort of thing, you know, it's a real challenge. I, I know... Um, Andy's asked me all the information I've, uh, uh, from the books about his particular icon I can't remember which one that is in the hope that he could um, try and understand more about that but of course the challenge with that is that the icons mean so many different things to different people yeah. that they, you know it, you know these guys were acting in accordance with the icons by sacrificing 50 people and I'm sure you can find some justification for that among all the various descriptions and the and the um, if you like the different faces that the icons have, yeah, which which is great for our, our you know our worlds being different. And I think my Zelosians aren't necessarily going to be quite as cruel as yours, um, and that's cool. You know, that's the beauty of the uh, the system inspires people to, or the the setting inspires people to take it all in their own directions. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but it doesn't make it easy for somebody like Andy to say, well, how am I acting in accordance with the icons? And yeah. here, you can say that was a thing that was, you know, if you like, it was against your better, more, your baser human instincts uh, and, and you were trying to do something noble. That's worth an extra XP. Yes, absolutely. It's also interesting because my character in your campaign, Yafet, uh, 
oh, I'm trying to remember exactly what who my who my icon is. But the way I've played him in that in that last scenario, he was quite. I think you're the dancer. I'm the dancer. Yeah. So he was quite uh, harsh. So when we shot those guys, the guards who were chasing us, um, Tony killed his. I put mine down. He was broken. But then as I walked, mm. as I walked past him, I kind of coldly executed him. You did. I remember that. Um, which I kind of think fits the character. Now, there are... Um, so there is an uh, element of the dancer, which is um, Nazarene's sacrifice, who follow the yeah. dancer, but who are effectively the evil side of... You know the, uh, the the despicable side of the dancer, um, but they've been destroyed as a as a as a faction long a long time ago. But there are pockets of it left. And I mentioned to you before that Yafet should probably be uh, a devotee of that side of the dancer because then it fits my actions much better than than otherwise. Yes. Yeah. Um, um, and so that's another good example of how you can be acting in accordance with with your icon and, and earning an XP. Exactly. Although I don't think I'll give you one that time, but next time, maybe. Now that you've defined exactly how your icon works, I'll, I'll do that, as well as, yeah. of course, send the Draconites to kill you because that's their job. <laughs> bring them on. <laughs> Just don't bring them on spaceships. I will. <laughs> I will do that. <laughs> Cool. Well, I think we've uh, probably covered everything we were going to cover, don't you think, Matthew? I think so, and I think we've probably gone over the hour this time. We'll see how it all edits together. But um, again, just a quick shout out to anybody who wants to feedback via our um, email or any of the social media that we're on. We we're looking at Twitter. We're looking at um, Reddit. We're uh, looking at Facebook. We've got a Facebook page now. G plus um, as well. And G Plus as well. We, we hang out on that forum. We haven't got a forum of our own, but we'll hang out on the Coriolis forum there. That's where we're getting most of our interesting conversation, isn't it, Dave? Well, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's excellent. Um, but I would also say that if, if you're liking what we're doing, please spread the word. You know, we want to get this out to interested people as far and wide as possible. So please. Uh, yeah. Tell, tell and them. review us on iTunes as well, because apparently it's good to have good reviews on iTunes. I think the algorithms do something about promoting you, don't they? If you get lots of good, good reviews brilliant cool but i think that is the end of our travels for this episode isn't it dave it is so uh thanks everyone for listening thanks matthew uh look forward to seeing you next time and goodbye from me and from me and may the icons bless your adventures to The Coriolis Effect, presented by Fiction Suit with the RPG Gods, with music by Stars on a Black Sea, used with permission of Free League Publishing. Imagery from NASA and the Hubble Space Telescope, brought to you by Wikimedia Commons. Typeface is code by Font Fabric. <laughs>